Once more unto the breach, dear friend. Else close the wall up with our English dead. Good morning again, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to another exciting second hour of the Personal Wealth Coach this week, starring Jake McClure. Hopefully we'll have less technical issues this hour, but I'm going to knock on a lot of wood as I say that, because that's because knocking on wood causes sounds, something. Um, I have lots more to talk about what's happening in the economies of the world, what's going on with inflation. Why are we seeing our inflation numbers still going up, but going up at smaller and smaller increments? Uh, we talked about this last hour that uh, uh, we had core inflation numbers come in at 6.3%. Um, overall CPA numbers, CPI numbers at 7.7%. Those aren't good numbers. Three years ago, if we'd said those numbers, everybody would be shrieking. But they're a lot better than the 9.1 and 9.6 numbers that we saw earlier in the year. And they're a lot better than the numbers that we're seeing in uh, the Eurozone with uh, in September, the uh, inflation rate was up 10%. Um, in October, end of October numbers, they're up 10.7%. We're getting up into the 11% numbers. We're in the core area. They're talking about 8 and 9% inflation. We're talking about 6.3. The UK for the third quarter of the year had another massive, or massive, it, it shrunk. It's, it's in economic terms, negative growth. The, the UK is likely, and by when I say likely, there's no good official international group that says when somebody's in a recession. Um, the, even in the United States, there's a, a, a firm that we've all kind of ceremoniously, but with no official anything, given the, the ability to say whether or not we're in a recession. It's the Bureau of Economic Analysis. It's not a governmental organization. It's just a group that says when we're in a recession or not. And there's not an international group that says that. But it looks a lot like the UK economy is now in recession. Uh, their uh, GDP fell 0.2% for the third quarter. It's the only major nation to have shrinkage, negative growth during that quarter. Why are they experiencing it when they're so far away from Ukraine and Europe's having trouble, but they're having growth? Why is the UK experiencing this? Because they're in effect in a major trade war at the same time that the inflation is hitting in other areas. Their inflation is higher than the rest of Europe. Well, why? Well, because of Brexit. We're having some degree of inflation because of the trade war that was started under Donald Trump, but it's been continued by Joe Biden. It's certainly not in the news right now. It is hard to find anything on tariffs in the news right now. Um, back when uh, President Trump started the trade war, uh, you're welcome to go back and listen to this, this program at that point and, say, and hear what we were saying about it at the time. We said at the time that anytime you put tariffs on something, it's a tax that the revenue goes to the government of the United States. It's the way the government was funded before we had an income tax. And econo economists universally view it as a tax on the purchaser, not the seller. 
because the seller just raises the prices and the purchaser makes up the difference. It's kind of like if you have a sales tax in Texas, they just raise the price with the amount of the tax. Uh, they have a listed price, and then when you go to pay for it, it's at a higher amount. That, in effect, is a tariff on trade. A sales tax is a tariff. We put a big sales tax under the Trump administration on a lot of our trade. The Biden administration didn't reverse it. In some cases, has increased it, increased it, and in some cases, has decreased it based on relationships with countries. Now, if you think about that for a second, and I said this last week when we were talking about the economic policies of Biden and Trump being not that far apart. I know that causes shock when people hear it because Biden's spending money on green stuff and Trump was spending money on petroleum. They both wanted infrastructure and they both had some kind of um, uh, earmarks that one wanted it on petroleum, one wants it on green. But when you look at the percentage of an infrastructure bill that that's covering, it's way less than the majority of it. You're talking about 15% of the bill. When you're talking about that much money and the entirety of the budget in question, we're talking about maybe 2% of the budget that we have such big disagreements about. But the reality is that the trade war still exists and some of our inflation today is because of it, because we have an extra tax on, on buying and selling things. That makes things more expensive. The UK has that across the board because they had a free trade agreement with Europe on all products, everything. And then they had Brexit. And when you had Brexit, all the trade agreements were made as a member of the EU. They couldn't make a trade agreement with the United States that didn't include the EU while they were a member of the EU. Soon as they exit the EU, they have no trade agreements with anyone. So all tariffs are being charged with their trade with Europe. And we had lots of tariffs on their goods based on what they were uh, before when they started trading with the United States. That causes a higher expense. Uh, the UK needs to buy a lot of stuff it sells a lot of stuff. All of the things going back and forth were more expensive because of this. So when we have a pandemic, which shrinks our ability to buy things, but we still have money because we're an industrialized nation, or the UK is a very wealthy nation as well. They have this money and they want to buy stuff. If you have money and you want to buy stuff and you don't consider it a luxury, even though other people in the world might, it's part of your day-to-day. -day. You want to buy it. So you pay more for it. This is the definition of inflation. We had big stimuluses in the United States. And depending on what party you are, you can blame your individual president for those stimuluses causing inflation today because both presidents did it. Donald Trump did it. Joe Biden did it. So you can pick or choose who you wish to blame. It has no real bearing on the inflation at this point, but it does make people feel better to be able to blame. And it helps if you blame somebody who's not on your team. So if you're a Republican, you can blame Biden. If you're a Democrat, you can blame Trump. The reality is that we had stimulus spending in the pandemic as a form of insurance payment against a massive loss that happened during the pandemic when we had shutdowns. They aren't doing the stimulus in China. And so businesses are failing in China at a high rate because of these shutdowns. And the government's not really stepping in to help them. 
there's not a lot. I mean, as 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 communist as China is, it's run by the the Communist Party. The CCP is running China, but they don't have social safety nets. They don't have a, a method of paying companies when they're going under. We did, so we were in effect more socialistic than China was during the pandemic, and it prevented a depression. Because if we had allowed the number of companies that would have failed to fail, the number of people to experience more suffering than they did by not giving extended unemployment benefits and so on, it's in fact an insurance payment from the government, which at the time I was saying this is the government's role. If we have a big natural disaster, the government needs to help people pick up the pieces so that we have a society that's profitable in the future. It seems like a socialistic event, but that really is what insurance is. You're sharing risk across a large group. That's socialism. Now, you're paying somebody, a third party, a profitable amount of money to manage the pot for you. And in this case, the government was the one that managed the pot. And they've got tax revenue that they can increase or whatever to pay for this. So we had these big stimuluses. So why aren't we not seeing much higher inflation in the United States than in the UK and the EU when they did not have those stimuluses? They didn't have this massive influx of money into the economy from the Federal Reserve and from the government as checks to people who had kids and checks to people who didn't have kids and forgivable loans to businesses and all these big events that we had that are part of our inflation didn't occur in Europe, and they have higher inflation than we have. It doesn't mean that the money that we got paid by the government didn't help produce the inflation. It just means that it's one part of many, many parts. And the vast majority of the inflation came from directly from supply issues. It's a supply-based inflationary issue. We had trouble buying toilet paper. We had trouble buying... Uh, baby food formula. Uh, you just go down a list of things that you had, uh, power bars and um, exercise equipment. We had trouble getting things that we wanted, which causes prices to go up. Supply-based. We also had money on hand, but we still have money on hand, and we're not spending it at the rate that would cause the kind of inflation that they're seeing in Europe. It's all very fascinating, and economists are going to be studying this period for, for probably centuries, talking about the pandemic economies of what happened in the world. What did China do? What did, what did the United States do? And to go back to the trade war, at the time, we said this is an amazing experiment. We don't believe that this is going to cause better trade or cause the United States uh, industrial output to increase or to produce more steel or more coal because we put tariffs on it. We didn't, by the way. We didn't increase our steel production. The profitability of steel production went up, but we didn't produce more because the companies involved in producing steel didn't increase the size of their plants or create new plants because they were afraid that the tariffs would go away as soon as they did that, and they'd be stuck holding the bill for creating these enterprises with no profitability guaranteed to pay for it. So we just had basically a rule saying that the home team got to play with both hands and a visiting team has to play with one hand. It didn't make us better players. 
It just, in fact, it made us lazier in some ways because our productions dropped uh, during the pandemic and they haven't recovered. So steel production is still being done outside, even though we still have steel tariffs. That adds to inflation. Um, and th having said that the, the, this was a great experiment, it was a good time to do it. Listening to our radio program back then, our economy was booming. And we said, if you're going to experiment with tariffs, now is a good time to do it because it's not likely to put us into a recession immediately. The problem is that all of our attentions got moved. Our agreement, our free trade or our trade agreement with China had two stages. We signed the first stage in March of 2020, and then something happened after that. The second stage never occurred. So we have less knowledge about what it costs to do business across borders. And the Biden administration is an old school union guy. <laughs> he wants to protect workers. This is very similar to the way Donald Trump approached it. So we have a lessening of free trade that increases the price of anything that you're buying from anywhere, everywhere, including at home, because the ingredients to the thing that you're buying probably came from somewhere else. So it's, it's a foregone conclusion that having a trade war adds to inflation. It's also a foregone conclusion that a hot war will add to inflation. So all the pieces people you're welcome. You're encouraged to find someone to blame for inflation if it makes you feel better. If it causes you to have a healthier outlook on life, you're allowed to blame someone else for this inflation. But the reality is that inflation exists because we're still willing to pay the price even if it's higher. If it's harder for you to pay for something and you still insist on doing it, the one that I hear the most about isn't eggs or avocados or tomatoes. It isn't even gasoline. When I'm talking to people one-on-one, -on -one, the thing that I hear the most about is their cable bill, that their cable bill is now $250 or $100 more than they were paying last year or $200 a month. Honestly, that's a first world problem. It really is. Uh, cable bills are expensive. And when people want to watch all the different channels, and they want to pay for that, and they are willing to continue to pay for it even when it goes up to $200 a month, that's part of inflation. You're still willing to pay it. If you stopped paying it, you would be spending less money this month than you did last month because you'd have <laughs> some hundreds of dollars that you were paying out that you know, what would you do at night when you're sitting in front of the television if you have no cable? Mm. Well, that's the decisions that we make. And I'm not saying that you should go out and just stop paying for your cable. That's a personal decision. It has to do with what you're willing to pay money on. But it is the definition of why inflation still occurs. If you're still willing to pay more for something and you don't stop yourself from doing it, then the price can keep going up because the price only goes up as high as people are willing to pay. If it goes above that, they have to stop charging it because people stop paying it. Uh, it is immutable, uh, and it's all, <clears throat> it all comes back to the many pieces of inflation. There have been some really, really astute studies, really well-done studies on the effect of the stimulus on inflation, and at the peak of inflation when our prices were going up at 
when that was analyzed, how much of that has to do with the amount of money that's sitting in bank accounts? It went down to less, it was a fraction of 1% was the addition of that money. Well, how do you get that? How, how does an economist look at this, at the bank balances and say these bank balances are not a big driver of inflation? Because the bank balances haven't been dropping quickly. They're not being used to spend. This is important because inflation has more to do with how you're spending the money than how much money you have. If you're willing to pay more for things, but you're not depleting your bank account, then you're getting the money from other places, whether that's from um, pay increase or from putting on a credit card. Well, our credit cards are still lower when you apply inflation, as far as the balances go, than they were pre-pandemic. Now, about the same balance today as right before the pandemic. But we've had inflation since then. So you would have to have a greater balance in your, on your credit card today to be equivalent to what was back then. We are putting money on credit cards. We are spending. And prices at places that are hard to hire for are the places that are having the greatest price increase. So if you're going to a restaurant, you're, don't be surprised if you pay more money today than you did three years ago. Because in 2020, most of the restaurant staff got laid off. They were told, go away, we don't need your services anymore because nobody's buying food the way they used to. Hotel staff got laid off. Well, hotel rates are much higher today than they were. Because after, when they said, all right, it's time to open business back up again, during that time period, there was a massive hiring surge from other businesses. And people that were the wait staff at a restaurant or the desk staff at a hotel got a job doing something else somewhere else. And now you didn't have people to fill those roles. So every restaurant you go to, if it doesn't have a hiring now sign out front or help wanted, then it's, it's very much an unusual restaurant. And the same is true. They don't put the sign out front for the hotels generally, but they're hiring and they can't get enough people to work. So they have to increase the prices that they're paying the staff. Uh, they also have to increase the price that they're charging their customers. Number one, because they racked up debt during the time that they had the doors shut. And number two, because they have to pay more to get the same level of service that they had three years ago. So they have to charge more to pay the debt and to pay the new staff. This is inflationary. Who, who is president during that time period is sort of irrelevant. It doesn't come back to the president saying, I want you all to lay people off, or the president saying, don't lay people off. Because if you're the employer and the president tells you to lay people off, you're generally going to point one of your fingers up in the air. Maybe the index finger. Probably not that one. It doesn't matter who the president is. If you're the employer, you'd make your employment decisions based on the reality on the ground for your business. And you want to hang on to your employees as long as you can, particularly if they're well-trained and, and your customers like them. If you have to lay them off, you know that long-term there's going to be issues getting people back with the same degree of skill. And that's what we're experiencing now. We're also experiencing a productivity drop. During the pandemic, we had productivity increases across the board. What is productivity? One person makes five things in a day. A year later, they make six things in a day. 
that's a 20% increase in productivity if they're the same things. When we lay people off, productivity tends to go up because the people we lay off tend to be the people that are doing the less things, the least amount of things. If you're in charge of who you lay off, you don't lay off the guy that makes the most production. You lay off the people that make the least production. So our productivity per person went up. If we had 10 people and we were making 10 things, now we have nine people and we're still making 10 things, we had an increase in productivity, about a 10% increase. So during layoffs, you get this productivity increase because you're hanging on to your good people. During hiring, you're hiring a bunch of people that don't know how to make things. You got to get them trained. Who do you use to train them? Well, you can use your least effective person to train them, but then you're going to have least effective results. So generally what happens is they take their best people off the line to train the new people, which causes productivity to drop. And we're seeing that now. We are having this massive hiring boom. Even with all the bad news out there and, and all the problems with interest rates going up and techs laying people off, but we're still net hiring more people. And we have about two times the jobs available as people looking for jobs. They're just disassociated by location. They may have a job available in Ohio and is somebody looking for it in Texas or vice versa. So we have this massive need for people to work and not enough people to fill the, the, the slots. That's inflationary. If you are having trouble hiring people and you have tomatoes to pick, there's a deadline. If you don't pick them by a certain time, they become rotten tomatoes. It's really hard to sell rotten tomatoes. I don't know if anybody's done a survey on that, but it is more difficult to sell rotten tomatoes than to sell ripe tomatoes. And if you don't have enough people picking those tomatoes, you want to pay more money because eventually it's a total loss. You just have rotten tomatoes. You can't sell them. So you pay more for the people to come and pick your tomatoes. But at some point during this period, there's still not enough people, even if you pay them more, to come and pick your tomatoes. And this, I use this as an example because tomatoes... Our harvest this year has not been great, not because of bad weather, but because we didn't have enough people to pick the tomatoes. So our tomato prices are up. Even though we couldn't pay enough to get people to pick the tomatoes, we still have tomato prices up, even though we didn't increase the number of people picking tomatoes because we didn't increase the number of people picking tomatoes. All of this is inflation. And we can point at Long-term trends, we have less illegal immigration today as far as the workforce is concerned than we did 10 years ago. Now, you got to be clear on this, the workforce. We had a whole bunch of illegal people that would come across the border every year just to pick stuff, and then they'd go back home. They were illegal. We have done a pretty good job of stemming that tide enough so that they found jobs at home. Now we have an illegal population that's much more refugee-based, coming from countries that are in turmoil, that are in absolute catastrophe, that have roving bands of really bad people doing really bad things. So when they come to the United States, they don't come to pick some tomatoes and then go back home at the end of the season. They come hoping that they will live. So again, the ethics of how we should allow that or not allow that, how we should control that or not control that, that's up for the politics. 
when I'm looking at inflation, I can see that the construction workforce that we had 20 years ago, which was comprised in large part by illegal immigration, is missing. So our prices for construction are way up, and we don't have enough people to fill those roles. Am I endorsing illegal immigration? Absolutely not. But it is a factor in our inflationary measurement. It has to be. You don't ignore it because, well, it's not legal, so it shouldn't be counted. The reality is that it costs less to build a house when you could hire somebody who wasn't here legally. They offered a cheaper wage. Was it taking a job from somebody that lived here? Well, now we have a really good answer to that. Not really, because we don't have people to fill those jobs right now. So what, there, there are political things that can be done to fix this. If we take a really good look at what is the demand for employment, what's the demand for people that we can't fill here? Where do we have the ability to get people to fill those jobs? Well, if we make some changes to immigration law so that we're tracking and doing background checks and bringing people in only so far as they're needed by our economy, and then have the back door out for when they're not needed for the economy, they go back to where they're supposed to go. That's a really effective way of doing business. And we did that for a while in the uh, 1960s. And then we stopped doing it in the 1970s. And in the 1980s, Ronald Reagan said, hey, we've got to, re <laughs> we've got to change this. We haven't had a major immigration change in our legislation for about 50 years. We can't expect in reality using any form of logic for the immigration rules of 50 years ago to apply at all to the economy of today. Now you can, you can say, you know, that on the, the right wing, they said, yeah, we're going to need immigration at some point. This is back at the beginning of the Tea Party move to, and the anti-immigration movement from, from the right wing was we've got to prevent this. We've got bad guys coming in the country. Really seriously bad people are coming. we got to stop it. They're coming in with these other people that are doing things that, that we're all paying for, but the bad guys, we got to stop them. We got, and so they said, before we figure out any new laws, we got to enforce the ones that are on the books. But the ones that are on the books, when they started talking about this, were 30-year-old laws. They're now 50-year-old laws, and they don't meet our demands anymore. Now, me ranting about this as one piece of inflation, it's kind of humorous because it's not even a major portion of inflation unless you're talking about buying a house or going to a restaurant or going to a hotel because those are the roles that a lot of illegals were filling. And it's funny, we said this back years ago that when we enforce those laws, we're going to see inflation in construction. We're going to see inflation in hospitality industry. It's just, that's a natural effect. We had a supply, illegal though it was. Now when that supply is removed, we lack that supply. That causes prices to go up. And I know it's not a popular thing for me to point out the reality. I'm supposed to tinge this with some political viewpoint of we must protect immigrants or we must keep them from coming in or one side or the other is going to say that. When I look at it, I'm just saying, all right, we have a reality on the ground. We had an illegal population doing things that were keeping prices down. They're no longer doing those things and prices are up. Is there a solution to it? Sure. Is it politically palatable? Probably not. 
we're probably not going to make any changes on this anytime soon. Nobody's talking about this in a way that has a forward progression. Uh, the idea of giving amnesty to people that are already here that broke the law to get here sits wrong in a lot of people's um, opinions. And the other side is saying, well, well, they're here, and what about their kids that didn't have any say in this? And so the ethical and political morality of this has to be decided in political debates. The reality on the ground is that our prices are up, at least in part, because of a lack of a workforce that we used to have. It's not a popular opinion to bring out. It's not a popular observation. It's more than an opinion. It's measurable with numbers. But it's an observation that has to be made to inform people's political decisions. I hate that it touches politics because it's a simple supply-demand issue. Um, that's a tiny part of inflation, except when it comes to houses and hospitality. But that's the place that we've seen the largest amount of inflation. Uh, supply chain issues of just getting parts from one place to another are going to continue to be an issue. China is about ready to lock down Guangzhou, which is a big area. Um, they have averaged throughout 2022 about 300 million people on lockdown at any given point during 2022. Lockdown so hard that they can't do things. That causes prices to go up because they're not making the things that they used to make that we used to buy. So we're willing to pay more for those same things. It also is making a chaotic nightmare of the marketplace of China. Nobody knows where to go to buy things anymore at any given time, in China or out. What does this look like for the world and the economy going forward? China's making moves to lock in a chaotic marketplace, an overly governmental-controlled marketplace. They're locking that in. Xi Jinping has made a lot of statements to that effect. The, but more, the regulatory aspect of what's happening there is very clearly in the direction of we're going to lock down forever if we need to. We're the ones in charge of our economy and people that were innovating and making new products are probably not the people that the spotlight's going to be on. So what does that mean for the rest of the world? Well, places like Taiwan and Thailand and Vietnam and Singapore are going to see a big demand for their, for their labor. Well, there's certain places, Singapore, Taiwan, they don't have room for more at this point. Um, uh, TSMC, which is uh, the major uh, chip manufacturer in Taiwan, is building another plant, not just the first one, another plant in Arizona. Th what is this? price tag on this is talking about a $12 billion plant. This is the second one they're making in, within the last 18 months there. Um, when, I'm, when I'm looking at, uh, here's a headline from the Wall Street Journal, for chip makers, the flip from shortage to glut intensifies. We're bringing a lot of the supply chain where everyone had their focus on it back to the United States. Uh, it used to be we had Texas Instruments, we had AMD, we had Intel. It was all made in the United States. In, our, in the late 90s, early 2000s, a lot of that got moved to China because the, the workforce in China was, was about 10% of the charge, including the, the round trip to and from China, 
as it was in the United States. To hire somebody in China, you could hire 10 people in China for one person in the United States. Well, it's now 75%, which means you could hire four people in China for the same as three people in the United States. But we don't have enough people in the United States to fill the roles. So when we're building the plants here, we can expect that that number is going to change a bit, that the numbers, it's going to be a little bit more expensive. But because we're focusing on the things that we had the hardest time getting during the pandemic, that shortage is becoming a glut, just like in the housing market, if if people are buying houses really, really quickly, then all the home builders are going to start building houses really, really quickly. And they don't communicate with each other to say, I'm building 100 houses. How many are you building? Oh, 100 houses too. And how many are you building? 100 houses. Now, 300 houses are coming on the market when there might have been a demand for 100. Well, the same is happening in the chip market. One of the issues with the chip market, this is humorous because the first hour I talked a lot about crypto. When the car manufacturers basically shut down during the, the worst part of the pandemic, as far as employment for the worst part, the manufacturers of chips didn't want to shut down. They were making a bunch of parts that would go to cars, chips that would go to cars. But at that same point, the crypto market took off because people are sitting at home. They had money in the bank. They're getting paid, even though they're not working at that moment. And they look around and they say, I'm going to do some day trading. Let me buy some meme stock or another. I'm going to buy these cryptos. Other people say, hey, I'm going to get into crypto mining because all these people want to buy crypto. That caused all of the chip manufacturers that were selling to the car market to turn and start trying to figure out how to get those chips into crypto mining devices. Not all of them, but a large amount, a lot, a lot of chips were being focused on that market. NVIDIA is, is a great example of a company whose profit changed based on crypto demand. So they make video cards for computer gamers or people that do massive computer modeling, whether that's the NSA or a meteorologist or an economist. These cards have a lot of computing power and it's designed to produce video. Well, the algorithms being used in this silly game to figure out who has the right to encrypt a block were really well developed around video cards. So as the crypto market went up, it was harder and harder to get chips to build things like cars or computers in general if you just wanted to do business. Uh, if you recall, it was hard to get web cameras because everybody was trying to buy web cameras at the same time because everybody's working at home. And some of the chips in the web camera are the same chips that are in the video cards that are being bought for way big markups by the crypto market. People were willing to pay a lot more money for that kind of chip in the crypto market than they were in a webcam market. So it took a long time for webcams to be available for the rest of us, the plebes that were not in crypto that didn't want to pay $3,000 for a $20 webcam. And that is not a, an example taken from nowhere. There were trades like that. So now we have a big focus on how do we get chips out there. Cars can't be made without chips. Computers are not being made without chips. Webcams aren't being made without chips. So all the chip makers spent a lot of money to make a lot of chips. And now the glut is hitting. And if you look at what's going on with NVIDIA today and the crypto market dropping like a rock, that other demand that was helping to push those chips into oblivion 
dis is disappearing. Chip makers are having a hard time selling to crypto miners. All that is part of the reason why we're having less and less inflation, because we're spending more money in the United States on fixing the supply chain than they're spending in Europe on the supply chain. Now, they're spending money on the supply chain in Europe in large part to cover energy. That's where their major part of inflation is coming from. We've got some inflation in energy too, believe me. But it's nothing compared to what they're experiencing. And most of our energy-related inflation has to do with them wanting to pay more for their energy. So they're working on the energy part of their supply chain. And most of that is building chains to the United States, but also to Norway. One of the big things going on militarily right now is all of Europe and the United States are helping out Norway to make sure that their offshore mining and drilling facilities are not somehow, air quotes, uh, accidentally damaged by the Russians because they're the number one provider of natural gas to Europe right now, and they have upped their production. It's cost a lot of money for them to do it. They're getting it from under the, the water, which is a more expensive way of getting it than from getting it from a natural gas well in Russia. But now they need to protect it. So their supply chains are getting more redundant and shorter, but more expensive. Again, inflation comes from that. So I, I'm kind of walking all around the picture of inflation. There are so many pieces that lead to inflation. Most of it comes from a belief that I am willing to pay more because I want that thing. And, it's a, and I've heard it from people waiting in line at restaurants. I've heard it from people wanting to go see a movie. I've heard it from people looking to buy a pickup truck. I want that thing and I don't mind, I don't want to pay more for it, but I'm going to get that thing before somebody else gets it. That's inflationary. And as the chips become more available, as we bring more redundancy into our, uh, into our supply chain, some form of the price increase is going to be there forever because it does cost more to get natural gas out from underwater than from just underground. And that's going to get locked in because Europe's not going to go back to Russia and say, all right, we forgive you. You just invaded somebody. It's no big deal. And you're threatening us with nukes. It's fine. We're just going to buy some natural gas from. No, that's not how it works. When we redundify, I just made a word, the supply chain, get some redundancy in there. So if one part of it fails, we can keep doing business. That causes extra expense. Since the late 90s with free trade, we worked really hard at making the supply chains really, really thin, very efficient, just-in-time stuff. Hey, I have a need for that. Get it to me right now. I'll get it from you. Um, but you're my only supply, and you're on the other side of the planet. And it worked for 20 years. It worked better and better and better and better. For 20 years, there is no way a naysayer could come out and say, let's make, let, let's, let's have three suppliers for that, even though it's going to cost us more. And they would have been laughed out of any board meeting. Today, it is the conversation that every board is having. So expect some part of the price increase to be around forever, but also expect that we shouldn't see the kind of massive increases in prices that we've seen earlier in the year here, because we are spending the money to make the supply chains more redundant. 
It's more expensive, but not as much more expensive as only having one supplier and not having that supplier work. And I'm about out of time for this week. Thank you guys very much for listening. It's been a solo program. I really appreciate your interest and your questions. It really runs, uh, helps us run the program better to have questions based on what you guys want to hear instead of what we want to talk about. Uh, this is the personal wealth coach and we do make uh, other statements than really bad puns about songs. Uh, we are uh, a, a finance program, as you would probably guess from the personal wealth coach being our title. The personal wealth coach is not just the title of the program. It's also the name of an SEC registered investment advisory firm. All right. Well, does that mean that the SEC likes us? What would you say to that, sir? I would say that the SEC is professionally dislikes almost everyone. Right. That is no implication of the SEC's approval just because we're registered with them. Why is the radio program and the firm named the same thing? Because we have to give this disclosure no matter what it is, and it's less disclosurable. It takes less time to do if it's just the same name. So we've been doing this program here uh, on this in, on this station, fourteen hundred AM in Temple, since nineteen ninety six, we've been doing this a long time, and we haven't been paid for it ever. Uh, we also Man. have not ever paid for it, so we've been doing this a long, long time. And the whole idea is education. We do advertise as a firm for on the studio, uh, on the channel for this radio program. We don't actually advertise for our firm. We're advertising for the radio program. So what we're saying is that this is educational and we do occasionally get business from it, but our purpose here is truly education. That being said, it's not advice. Advice would be if I knew who you were, if the other bald guy, Jeff, knew who you were and we were able to have a private conversation with you about things in your best interest versus broadcasting to everyone. So we're going to be talking about education, which is why we do the program to begin with. So those two disclosures are really one. And having said that, do you deem to tell us another disclosure? Yes. The information we present on this educational radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. And he really can't get through the week without that. I think right. uh, we do offer investment advice off the air, fiduciary investment advice to people of high net worth. And you can get a hold of us uh, locally with voicemail during the weekend, real live people during the week at 254 947 1111. You can also reach that toll free at 1 800 914 7526. That's 800 914 plan. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. We've got podcasts and radio programs going back. You can find the podcasts anywhere podcasts are found. You can sign up for our newsletter there or just read them back to your heart's content going back lots of years. Email us directly at Jeff and or Jake at tpwc.com or through the contact form. Until thank next week, thank you very much for listening. This has been the Personal Wealth Coach.